Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. Today's episode is with Dr. Lewis Elliott. Dr. Lewis is a professor who studies 19th century colonial history and um, in particular looking at the industrialized slave complex of the Middle Passage and how that affected the, the, the economies, the history, not only just of the, the 18th, 19th century, the 20th century, but even today. Um, we really get into it. I really appreciate them. There's, there's a lot of information here. If you have any questions, please email us, Rob's probably wrong at gmail.com. We, uh, we welcome your insight, your questions, your feedback. Thank you for listening. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. Thank you, Thank you for joining us, Dr. Lewis Elliott. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, my my pleasure. So so we spoke last week about um uh, the the importance of the the Haitian Revolution and the contemporary consciousness of uh, of racism. <laughs> yes. So, I thought it'd be a good idea to sort of discuss the the, the history of this, um, as well as sort of before what had happened and and the events leading after this. Now, for for those just tuning in. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about your background and and the history that that you teach and why you got into it? Yeah, of course. So I um I was born and raised in in London, England. Um, but my I was raised by a single mother. Uh, my mother came from Cape Town, uh, South Africa, and she uh, was forced to leave her homeland because she contravened uh, the apartheid regime in the nineteen seventies. Uh, and so, uh, you know, raising me and my siblings with a very conscious focus on, um, you know, racial difference and and the power of, of racism in society, what that can do uh, to a community. Uh, and I, so I grew, grew up in South London in a place called Brixton, which is in Southwest London, and it is known for a very large population of people of Caribbean descent. Uh, so my professional interests are in... Uh, in the Caribbean, the Caribbean, uh, the African diaspora in the Caribbean, uh, and my my research uh, looks at enslaved rebellions and the ways that mm-hmm. um, people of African descent, through the acts of rebellion, influenced uh, the ideologies of the time, and then how we see that influence projected into the present. I mean, this is this is a, a turning point in history because s- chattel slavery. Um, it, it really started sort of when shortly after Christopher Columbus uh, discovered the New World and colonization started to become a thing. Yeah, so chattel slavery and it's in the form that we know it from that period, from the you know late 1700s, uh, really began soon after. Uh, Columbus arrived in the Americas. Um, there, there were forms of slavery being explored and forms of slave trading being explored, especially among uh, the Portuguese 
um, just slightly before that, um, as they they began exploring uh, and um, developing relationships with coastal African states uh, in West Africa. But the, yes, you're right. The slavery that we we witnessed in Haiti and the slavery that those Haitian rebels were rebelling against uh, began soon after uh, Columbus arrived, early 1500s, when it became clear that there were commodities to be extracted from the Americas uh, and commodities to be grown and then uh, exported to Europe. Right. right. And, and another thing that we, uh, we discussed was how slavery before this period, it did exist but not to the, the industrial size that it became. And you, we, we had talked earlier that mm -hmm. there were slaves from all over different ethnicities and backgrounds before this period, but it wasn't until the Portuguese made these trading connections with Western Africa that, that the, the, the industry of slavery really took hold and, and manifested itself in the Middle Passage. Right, exactly. So slavery, slavery has been part of, you know, practically every civilization uh, in history. That's that's well established. Uh, and I think that you're right, Rob. The, the difference, the central difference, is that industrialization yes. of slavery yes. that that occurred as a response to that commodification of American goods. Um, so slavery existed uh, throughout Africa, throughout Asia, and you know throughout most of Europe, certainly in its earlier history, but usually as a form of punishment. Um, it was a, a, a limited-term prison sentence. You know, an equivalent could be hard labor. Um, it was a, um, a result of war. Uh, the, 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 the losing side in battle might uh, have some of their soldiers enslaved to ensure uh, there was no, would be no repeat. Uh, but these were temporary things, and they were uh, on a far smaller scale than we'd ever seen in history. Uh, the, the rise of chattel slavery is the, the term that you used, it's the accepted term, industrial slavery is another way of looking at it, is, is slavery on a scale that had never been seen, seen before. Uh, it, it was absolutely massive. It was spearheaded by the Portuguese uh, and then the, the French, Spanish and English uh, soon after to um, populate their uh, colonies, uh, populate the colonial plantations in order to extract maximum wealth uh, from those areas. Uh, and that's what um, 80 was the, the most profitable um, at the time of its revolution. Um, the French were uh, growing incredibly wealthy off the backs of their African laborers in Haiti. Uh, and it was the massive economic importance to the French empire um, that meant that when uh, when they, they lost that uh, lost that colony, uh, it, the, the reverberations were just massive throughout the Atlantic world. The, the, the problem with this is that it was twofold. It affected um, not only France's uh, view to the other colonial powers, so other colonial powers wanted Haiti. So they see that there's this vacuum, and, and Haiti was, like you said, it was the richest colony for France. It was the most wealth uh, uh, generating of the mm -hmm. colonies, but also too that slavery, um, again, this industrial slavery was all throughout the Americas from Brazil to um, um, North America. So when this happened, there was great fear of these empires that this could happen to them. 
so they they double down on on their their restrictions their security is that right yeah they so they did there was a there was a massive fear that uh, events in Haiti would be repeated uh, elsewhere. It didn't necessarily lead to a, a change in attitude uh, in terms of uh, policies on the ground um, in political terms. Uh, there, there were significant concerns among individual planters uh, who grew further, more and more suspicious, uh, and that manifested in their treatment of their en enslaved people. But there was no massive sort of reorientation of uh, colonial policy, uh, and that that was that was in large part why events in Haiti became so inspirational uh, among people of African descent, and led to uh, misinformation and, and led to inspiration. Uh, and triggered numerous other revolutions, uh, revolts uh, against slavery, uh, and that is the that is the um, that is the one I'm most interested in. The ways that uh, the, the those the, those Haitian ideologies spread throughout the Caribbean, throughout the Americas, uh, really, and then how, despite that fear of of a Haitian revolution, that um, that existed among those other imperial powers and, and national powers um, during the age of revolutions as, as the empires broke apart, um, how they were unable to, you know, by, while being concerned about what happened in Haiti, were then unable to respond uh, in a way that didn't, um, didn't cause uh, massive loss of life and chaos for both them and their enslaved people. What? And before, um, before this happened, we discussed how the slavery was viewed. I mean, slaveholders did not obviously treat their, they, they treated human beings as tools. And there were sort of two ways that they looked at it that, that we discussed that really kind of sets in motion, um, again, why this revolution, this slave revolt took place because of uh, one, that, that it was a, a very slim minority that were slaveholders, like some slaveholders owned up to it's, some records say like two, 200 slaves, some crazy astronomical numbers. And the way that slaves were treated was completely dehumanizing. And I think you, you discussed it as there was the utility and there was the, the dehumanization. Yeah. So the, these are the two, um, you're right, right. The, these are the two, processes that, that right. differentiate industrial slavery um, in Atlantic slavery from from other forms of slavery in history you have industrialization um, which led to dehumanization and commodification so right. these two things did not occur by accident this was a a specific and deliberate process uh, that um, these these white imperial masters from Europe um, put in place, uh, over the course of the Middle Passage, the, the passage from Africa to the Americas, that meant that by the time these uh, people of African descent, these, these African enslaved people, arrived in the, Ameri in the Americas, they were now ready uh, to work on plantations. And the two things that were required was dehumanization. It was the scale of slavery meant that um, it would have been impossible to see these people as people 
right? They were beasts and animals to to the uh, enslavers, uh, and then they were tools. They were they were to be used until they were no longer up to the task, and then they were to be discarded. Something one of those common misconceptions uh, in the history of slavery and slavery studies uh, is the idea that paternalism. Uh, was a, a long-held belief, this idea that enslaved people were uh, treated um, with any degree of respect uh, and that um, enslavers were in any way interested in their welfare, um, their views on anything uh, and their place in the world uh, beyond work on their plantations. That was a, a very much 19th century attitude that occurred after the end of the transatlantic slave trade itself. Um, that, that ended for the British in, the, in 1807 and for the United States in 1808 uh, and through most of Latin America um, up until the 1850s, that was still going on. The ready access to that uh, labor, that enslaved labor coming over from Africa meant that there was no, there was no reason to engage with enslaved people in any way other than as workers, uh, as tools, uh, as you said, uh, and that that colors revolutions and rebellions in a way that would be different, uh, right? If if that if that wasn't the case, uh, we talked briefly about you know Nat Turner, which Nat Turner was in 1831 in, in Virginia in the U.S., and that was you know after the the transatlantic slave trade to Virginia had been outlawed for for over 20 years at this point, so most enslaved people. Uh, given the shockingly low life expectancies, as you can imagine, would have been born in the U.S. Uh, and they would have experienced a very different kind of slavery to uh, those in Haiti in 1791, uh, where, you know, the, the slave trade from Africa was still very much alive and well. That's a different kind of slavery that led to different kinds of revolution uh, in the eyes of white people. And I think that's the really interesting point. The point that I really find fascinating is because... Nat Turner in the 1830s, uh, the Malay rebels in Bahia in Brazil in 1835, the, um, the Amistad mutineers in 1839 in Cuba, uh, all had a very similar view as to what they were demanding. And that was, you know, independence and end of, an end of slavery, which is exactly what was going on in Haiti. And it was people, uh, it was white people, white slave owners and white politicians from these empires and nations that were unable to comprehend that this was the, the from the, the eyes of the enslaved, this was uh, the, the problem was massive and essentially identical. Uh, and that's what um, was so hard to comprehend for these white people uh, and led to these revolutions occurring the way that they did, that common wind, as it's called, from Haiti spreading throughout the Americas. The, the other thing is this idea of paternalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this being birthed sort of around the time of abolition, you wrote about William Blake... Uh, and, and these ideas that are coming out about this time. The, the other piece is that what might be hard for, for others to understand is that, like I said, racism had a very different look. I mean, the Mediterranean was sort of, if you think about the Occidental histories of the world, Northern Africa was a resource to the rest of Europe. And so there would have been interactions with people of African descent um, with Europeans. But it, but like you say, with Portugal going down there and then moving to Haiti, 
uh, or, or excuse me, to the colonial powers. That's when things changed. Now, the other piece about that is um, around 1791, when this all happens, the way the revolution took place is very different. So the backdrop to this is that there's the French Revolution and that due to the French Revolution, the colonies realized that the motherland or, or, or their imperial owner, however you properly phrase that, was now bankrupt. So now is a good time to make demands for the changes that they wanted to see. Is that sort of the backdrop to the, the, the Haitian Revolution? Why this took place? Yeah, so that's a, a boat of contention. I'll, uh, let me address the, the North African thing sure. first. Uh, so you're absolutely right. North Africa was a massive resource for Europe, but then Europe was a massive resource for North Africa as well. That relationship was very even. Okay, and in the early days of um, of contacts, the early days of the the transatlantic slave trade, that relationship was quite even as well. It was the the economic strength, the economic importance of the Americas. It was a, a an economic boon that African states did not have access to, which quite quickly shifted that balance okay the the other slightly uncomfortable i suppose reality is that until about the 1840s europeans had no way into africa and so it was coastal african states places like Dahomey and lagos uh, and, and congo who were profiting massively uh, and that money was uh, being concentrated on the coasts and leading to massive power imbalances in Africa, which led to Europe becoming the more and more dominant partner. Okay, before that, uh, Africa, the, the, the wealth disparity in Africa was, was rather different, uh, and that meant that they were much more even in terms of, a, in, in global economic terms, a more even partner with European engagement until, um, uh, until the, uh, the advent of that industrial slavery. Uh, your point about Haiti being it being an opportune moment, uh, this is something that's quite contentious uh, among in, in the historical, you know, scholars of slavery uh, and, and scholars of Haiti in particular. And I, I am I'm a scholar of revolution more than I am a scholar of Haiti, um, but I, I I'm aware that there is this. I would call it looking from not the outside, but with one foot in that door only. I see it as a bit of a chicken or the egg um, analysis because you have a, you know, 90 plus percent of the population of Haiti uh, or Saint-Domingue as it was at the time was enslaved. Uh, And then you have a tiny, mostly urban minority of white people, white French people, who were then split on class lines just like they were in the metropole in in France itself. So when the French Revolution kicks off in the 1880s, you have that power disparity among white people in Haiti, which leads to an incredibly fragile colonial relationship. Some people say that that was an opportune moment for enslaved people to then trigger a a revolution and that they were in tune with uh, what white discourses were going along in in the uh, urban areas of Haiti. I I think that the the enslaved people were not so interested in those white discourses and were very much angling for a liberty of their own design rather than a liberty of, of French Republican design. And that they were really were desperate for 
emancipation. They, they wanted an end to slavery in, in Saint-Domingue. Um, the timing was, was opportune and they were probably well aware of what was going on, but I wouldn't suggest that they were then siding with the Republican side, which some people have suggested. Uh, they they had their very much had their own uh, ideas about what they wanted out of um, the Haitian Revolution. In terms of uh, organizing the slave revolution, mm-hmm. is there much primary sources on, on how this was done? Because I again, what I'd like to do is understand the how this reverberates, echoes into mm-hmm. into today, and. And things like grassroots movements, like the civil rights movements, Black Lives Matter movements, um, in the face of, of, of these oppressors, how were they able to organize themselves uh, and to become, you know, to, to they had the numbers, but they were able to overcome the powers. They were. And in terms of sources, that there's a, a fair amount of inference um, to be done, you know, most people, you know, it wasn't a racial thing. Most people in the Caribbean were illiterate at the time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, they weren't writing things down. Um, but there were there were sufficient numbers of, of literate enslaved people that they were able to uh, steal newspapers. They were able to overhear gossip uh, from the, the plantation houses. Uh, and these things are are pretty well established as the the way that information was passed around uh, enslaved communities. Um, the, the those reasons, the 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 knowledge of the up, uprisings and the unrest in metropolitan mm-hmm. France would have been well well established throughout the island of Haiti. Um, it might not be com- might not have been completely accurate. Um, they they might have um, you know the, the game of telephone across the Atlantic and then between plantations would have certainly distorted things. Uh, I, you know, in my own research, I was um, recently looking at a, a rebellion in Jamaica um, that uh, that happened in the 1830s, that known as the Baptist War, and uh, the enslaved testimony from survivors uh, of that rebellion who were being you know interrogated by imperial authorities, uh, imperial British authorities, uh, they were talking about how they'd heard about what William Wilberforce had been saying. Uh, they were expecting the king to uh, end slavery, and they they believed that there was the plantation owners that were withholding uh, emancipation. Uh, and, you know, there's probably nonsense. They were probably well aware that that wasn't the case, but that's a good story to spread around. Uh, it, it gets them off the hook because they, they, they had knowledge before. You know, they, they're not... You know, they're not one-dimensional. They're not. They don't have a one-track mind. They were savvy and street smart and uh, and scrappy, as well as being formidable in their numbers. So, there, you know, it was an awareness that the power dynamic was a myth that really yeah. triggers the Haitian Revolution and triggers subsequent revolutions as well. Because you said you, one successful revolution leads to so many attempted revolutions uh, and rebellions and, and uprisings, uh, and it it is the the reasons why Haiti was successful were where you know so many others aren't. Those are debated so hotly as well, uh, and it, it's you know the timing of the French Revolution is important. Uh, the the personnel, the 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 people, the the, the individuals who were rebelling in Haiti were particularly gifted uh, military operators. Um, 
as well. Um, but the response of of whites was probably the the main thing. Uh, the the, the, the shock of, of this going well at first and then that snowballing into uh, a call for independence uh, meant that the, the subsequent times that occurred, um, they were a little more wary and a little more aware of what, what was to come. Uh, and that was that was probably the, the, the central difference uh, along with you know the, the massive scale of it. The, um, it was a bigger revolution that had ever occurred in the Caribbean or the Americas uh, until that point. And they also um, fought off the English, like other co colonial powers went into Haiti. And um, my apologies for the mispronunciation of his name, but the general that oversaw it, L'Overture? L'Overture, yeah. Yeah. And how he was able to mobilize his armies and defend against, like, because because there was a racial hierarchy at the time, and still is, of course. And the fact that they kept being defeated, like, they, they underestimated Haiti, obviously. Um, but then there was this idea of, is this sort of the genesis of, I guess, white fear around sort of minorities like is this is this where that kind of this the stereotype of um the black aggressor comes from mm -hmm. um i i i would say there were probably instances of that earlier but in terms of yeah. the mass the mass hysteria about the people of african descent and the inherent danger that they they pose to to white society uh i would agree it probably has its genesis in in the in the 1790s, the, the Haitian Revolution. Um, I'd push back a bit on the suggestion that they underestimated Louverture. I think he defeated them. He was they were well aware of him being um, a, a threat, and he was, you know, the, the, he's, he should be and deserves to be listed among the great generals of history. He, he was a genius, a military, absolute military genius. Um, but you're right. So the Obviously, the French were his primary target in, in that, that revolution, the, the war for Haitian independence, that he was successful in defeating them. Other powers were quite interested in, in what was going on in, in Haiti. Um, you know, as we discussed already, it was the most profitable colony in the Americas. Um, it was the, the loss of revenue that hit France was going to be fascinating and potentially very useful for, you know, the, the brinkmanship and saber-rattling going on between the French and the Spanish and the French and the English, the British. So both the Spanish and the British were, were very closely uh, monitoring the situation, as was the, the new nation of the United States, who had um, wrestled with the idea of ending slavery and ultimately decided not to in their own founding less than 20 years previously. So you have all three of these nations, uh, empires or nations, um, observing what was going on in, in Haiti. And at first, they were quite content with the idea of the French losing their, their crown jewel uh, of their empire. And once that became clear and they saw the longer-term effects of this, uh, they suddenly became very concerned that Haiti might actually successfully gain their independence because the idea of a black 
republic in the Americas was absolutely atrocious. Uh, the idea that people of African descent were able to organize a community, organize a state and act as a nation was completely contrary to everything that they had been espousing and the whole reason for slavery persisting uh, as long as it had was the falsehood that that was not that they were incapable of doing so so suddenly you have the british uh, suddenly you know launching um continue uh, you know battalions and marine of marines from jamaica to try and stop the haitians uh from gaining independence george washington sends uh soldiers down from the united states to try and do the same and spain attacked through uh san domingo which is the, the other half of the island um, they they try and uh, invade through that border, and Toussaint Louverture and his successors defeat all of them, uh, leading to that Black Republic. So that's the other side of the coin, right? You have the the enslaved rebellions, which are terrifying because of the um, the ability for Black people to organise themselves against whites, and then you have the longer term issue of the the terrifying nature of a Black Republic and, and what that means discursively to your program of enslavement after the fact. The other piece too is that um, for you know slaveholders and and this contemporarily speaking, our society we have benefited <clears throat> off of the exploitation of others in order yeah. to get to where we are. We we all have privileges. I have more privileges than another individual just based on the historical fact. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reason why Haiti is still so relevant and it's such a powerful message. Again, it, it, it speaks to this idea of for, for, you know, the white, the, 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 the person with all the power, the fear of reprisal, because that is what happened too, is that after Haiti, it was people still would not relinquish power. And we know that that was met with the same level of violence that it would have been met by, by anybody, any other power, but because it was um, people of African descent, it was demonized so much, so much more. Yeah. So you have, this is, this, there are two reasons for this, right? You have firstly the, the economic concerns of losing your investment, your plantation, your, if you're, yeah. Yeah, your property, uh, both human and, you know, agricultural, because that they're, they're you know, the profits were massive, but the, the margins were razor thin. It was an extraordinary investment to own a plantation in the, in the Americas. Uh, and the other, the other issue is, you know, fear of revenge. Uh, and that was, you know, the, it was said quietly because it, again, undermined the notion that it was a humane endeavor and a, an endeavor that the African body was suited for. Uh, because if, if those things were true, then why would people of African descent be vengeful? Uh, and, and so this was said, it was never said overtly the same way that it would be economically ruinous to end slavery. The concern was that they are going to murder us in our beds because we have treated them so atrociously for so long. And, and I think that they have a, the fear was real. And ironically, the, the rebellions that I've studied, I've, I've, I've looked at, dozens of them uh, in my work, the impetus was not revenge. There was no, there were obviously instances of 
black people murdering white people. But most of that occurred on the battlefield. It was what I, I would suggest. I, I'd submit that this is a legitimate casualty because it was a war. Uh, it was mm -hmm. a soldier on soldier, despite the white people not seeing it that way at the time. But there was no, you know, running into the plantation houses and murdering these people in their beds. There were instances of that, but it was by no means the primary motivator. There were two things that those people, the people of African descent wanted. They wanted an end of slavery and they wanted independence from white rule. Uh, and they weren't that fussed about how they got those things. They were very clear that those things are what they wanted. And it was the subsequent dis distortion of that message uh, that has led to the, you know, I, I, I would I could say that I do say that there is a direct correlation between the inequalities of today and the distortion of that simple message that occurred in the 19th century. In your, in your article, um, exaltations, agonies, and love, the romantics, and the Haitian Revolution, I mean, that you speak about around the time of abolition that, that these ideas are starting to come into fruition. And I mentioned previously about William Blake, the very famous <laughs> artist and poet, how he had a humanitarian approach and how that was popular, this idea that, that white bodies and black bodies were equal, although the language was still very much, you know, quite, uh, problematic but anyway yeah. this this idea that that there was uh equality and equity in their bodies right but then the haitian revolution happened and it's almost like the arguments that william blake was trying to make for a humanitarian approach to abolition kind of went out the window and abolition became it manifested itself in a very different way yeah so abolition had the notion this is the other quite serious misconception about slate in slavery studies the idea that there had there was always a loud voice in white society against slavery that that did not exist uh, until until probably the 1760s uh, and even then it was a it wasn't a, a large number of people. The abolition really gathered pace. Um, my expertise in the British Empire, uh, but I know that there were abolitionist movements uh, elsewhere, and they all spoke to each other. It was a very international uh, debate going on about abolition. Um, they that that really began in the 1770s, 1780s, and the the principal argument in those uh, in that period, and talking people like Randall Sharp. Uh, and, and William Wilberforce, uh, Hannah Moore. The idea was, uh, as, as you say, Rob, that there was a, a humanitarian justification for this uh, and that given the opportunity, people of African descent would be able to integrate into what they saw as white society just as well uh, as uh, white people had. Um, you know, again, language is problematic, um, but the language was very, very progressive for the time. Um, so, you know, historically, that, that's, it's commendable. But then when the Haitian Revolution sent shockwaves around throughout the Atlantic world, um, you know, it affects uh, race relations in Latin America, North America, Europe, and, and coastal Africa are all the same. Suddenly, that image uh, it, it is a much, harder, it's a much harder argument to sell, given the, the tales of savagery which uh, the people were hearing about what happened in Haiti. 
And we know now that it was a legitimate war of independence with a, a, a professionally run army against an imperial power uh, and the, 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 the professionally run army to Saint Louverture's uh, military force was successful. But the stories they were hearing then was, you know, it was the, the naked Africans taking the, the cane machetes and running into the beds and slaughtering children and eating them. And, you know, real horror stories and to really paint the, the now nation of Haiti in, in as bad a light as possible. And suddenly it becomes impossible then to to suggest that abolition was a, uh, a had any humanitarian benefit at all. And that it's when the, the argument starts that, that slavery was necessary to both protect the white people from people of African descent, but also to protect people of African descent from themselves and their own savage natures. That's when abolition becomes economic because the expense that states incurred to protect plantations from a vengeful enslaved population, the argument was made that it was therefore too expensive and that a free, uh, a free labor society would require less imp imp economic input from the state in order to be successful. If you're paying your laborers, then they might not, they, they probably won't try and kill you. Is the, you know, it was a very simplified and facile way of saying it, but that was essentially the argument. The middle ground is struck in, in the early 1800s with the, the end of transatlantic slavery. The idea being that if you end transatlantic slavery, suddenly the enslaved people who are already in the Americas uh, become that much more valuable. And therefore you must then, as a slave owner, treat them rather better because it's not like they were easily replaceable because the, you know, the, the funneling from Africa is no longer happening. And that was, that was the British and the Americans who were really spearheaded that, the French soon after in 1815. Uh, the Portuguese and the Spanish kept up their slave trading uh, far, far later. Um, they, didn't, they, they weren't buying into that argument. And that, that has a whole host of, of reasons why we can get into if you want. Um, but when the slave trade ends, uh, the idea is that suddenly enslaved people are treated better. Uh, and that's not the case. They were treated differently, um, but uh, they were certainly not treated better. The, the dehumanization was still very much there. The commodification was perhaps uh, changed rather. Um, but we, we can get into that if you want. Uh, but that, that was the, the sea change in, in abolition as a result of the Haitian Revolution was that the tales of savagery that came out of it. There's two sort of historical examples um, that, that echo today. One of Malcolm X and it's sort of freedom through any means. And then there's the, the it, which is an oversimplification of what Malcolm X stood for. Yeah. And an oversimplification of Martin Luther King Jr. who was all for integration. Of course, as you've discussed, I mean, we are all very complicated, complex people. So trying to, you know, paint somebody with such a broad stroke is always problematic. But these do seem like the big sort of ideas of there's integration or there's sort of freedom, you know, our, our, our liberation. Mm -hmm. And Haiti, again, is, draws on this sort of freedom by any means. And the, the outcomes of that 
as you as we've discussed, the stereotypical outcomes in the minds of of uh, the powers that may be is that well, that just means violence. And so today we we speak about Black Lives Matter, and there, there's been two waves of it in the last ten years, and the first one died seemed to have have um, gone down in its in its uh, progressive nature, and then it came back. And it's it's like you said it's it's started a whole host of of um, social movements, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but this idea of there's still this huge fear of what does this mean? What does this mean? And and I think in in the public's eye, we've well, I talked about last time the psychology of slavery mm-hmm. and how really the the consequences of this have impacted and influenced everybody. And and I know that, you know, we shouldn't feel so bad for the the white people. And it's not necessarily about, you know, feeling bad for them, but it's the idea of the effect that it has had. And it's how do we move forward from this? Yeah, so I think the co-opting of social movements is not new and and I would you know you're right there are these two waves of uh in the last 10 years uh of of, mo- of progressive racial movements the, the black lives matter movement but the you know the problems that they are raising they've been raising since last summer are the same problems uh that they've been experiencing for the last 10 years and and prior and it, it's it's quite dangerous um when when these sort of social movements gather speed at, at the level that they are, because it leads to what I see as exactly what happened in the anti-slavery movement of the 19th century. So when um, when slavery ends, uh, and you know I'm going to use the British imperial example; it's the one that I know best. But there are similar things occurred in Cuba and Brazil and the U.S. Um, when slavery ends, there is then a debate over the place of blackness in society. And while not all black people were enslaved, the vast majority of them were, and the equation was blackness equals slavery for the vast majority of people observing it. When that disappears, there is a discourse about what what it means to be black in the British Empire, what it means to be black in the Spanish Empire, what it means to be black in the United States. Uh, and the co-opting of the victory of abolition, the idea that, you know, the idea that Lincoln freed the slaves or Wilberforce freed the slaves uh, rather than enslaved people had been struggling for so long and Lincoln relented or Wilberforce and the the British uh, government relented and finally did as they had been demanded uh, means that abolition is a white victory. And if it's a white victory, suddenly you there there is a an ability for white people to dictate the place of blackness in society, rather than the ability for black people to suddenly have the power to integrate themselves into society. That is that is distorted, as you said, by the you know the civil rights movement is a good recent, relatively example of that distortion. 
you have the Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King debate. And you're right to simplify it. Um, Malcolm X was uh, separation and uh, black liberation by any means. And Martin Luther King was a more discursive and placed a lot of emphasis on the power of peaceful protest. That has been co-opted by people who, who see uh, Martin Luther King as a as peaceful and someone who would uh, not have supported the Black Lives Matter because of the the violent elements of it, which is frankly nonsense. He would have, he would have not he would have not liked the violent aspects of it, but he would have been far more enamored with its message than with anything that he might have found distasteful. And the the recasting of Martin Luther King as someone that delivered or someone that allowed Lyndon Johnson to deliver civil rights in a way that was palatable for white people has completely demolished what he actually stood for, which was which was integration. It was aggressive integration. And once the civil rights movement had been successful in, in 1964, he, he kept on pushing for equality. His last acts, his last speeches were against the massive discrepancy between black and white soldiers in the Vietnam War. He said, you know, they're sending our kids to die. You're not sending your own kids to die. What the hell is going on? People completely ignore that because they see him as this caricature, frankly, of uh, peaceful blackness that we can then hold up as a society and say, look how progressive we are. Whereas that's not historically not the case at all. And you see the similar things going on, the memorialization of, of someone like Samuel Sharp in, in Jamaica or uh, Busa in, in Barbados. For a long time, they were seen as these, uh, these champions of peaceful protest. Uh, against slavery that were misunderstood by by plantation owners. And they were not that at all. They were military leaders and strike uh, leaders of um, labor strikes against slavery because they were demanding uh, payment for their work who were then violently uh, crushed by uh, a white um, a, a white imperial system desperate to silence that that kind of voice. And I think that similar things might uh, could well happen now. The, I mean, the distortion of kneeling in Black Lives Matter. I mean, it, yeah. it in real time, it, it changed it, its meaning. Changed uh, from you know protesting police violence to disrespecting the military, which is Kaepernick explicitly said he was not doing. Well, another one that I'm having a huge problem with mm -hmm. is um, January seventh was the the attack on the on the capitol is that correct january 7th next right yes. and and this happens and meanwhile people like before that prior to this were having aneurysms practically mm -hmm. during during the nfl because people were kneeling to raise awareness mm -hmm. like the 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 disparity between those two is baffling right and and it almost yeah. seems like and all it like and, and if you look at the people that stormed the Capitol, I mean the the demographics of which are quite telling. I think that there's something strange going on here between you know. Again, yeah. this the the psychology of 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 race in contemporary society, and the imbalance yeah. of it. I mean this this can't keep going on. I mean because that's absurd that. 
that this that it got to that level that that was able to happen yeah and and, I mean, and, I, if, and if the response was i mean the reality is if if what happened on january 6th was of a different um you know makeup right a different demographic it would be a very different uh, uh response yeah i mean this is this is garden variety racism on a on primetime tv right there's there's yeah. there's no there's no denying that the people who are, are screaming at, at black nfl players and um suggesting that you know the 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 voices of january 6th were had legitimate grievances uh, and were responding appropriately is i mean yeah the, there are roots historically but i don't think you need to look at those to to know what you're looking at in, in that particular instance um it does have a it does have a, a, a sort of an eerie echo of, of what happened in you know in light of industrial revolutions in the past uh you know the, the genesis of that that kind of racialization the 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 need and, and desire for elites whites to separate working classes by race uh, in order to ensure that they remain separate it is is really the genesis of something like that because you know the vast majority of those january the 6th rioters um you probably character characterize as, as working class or perhaps middle class but certainly not elites um by any stretch and and then the you know the the athletes lead, lead, kneeling are obviously making a huge amount of money but they're representing a community that is extremely poor um there was a very real fear that in the in the 19th century, post-industrialization, um, and in you know in the U.S. and the U in Britain's case, post-abolition, that people of African descent and white working class people might recognize that they had uh, a lot more in common than not, and that they had grievances with all the same people, uh, and that led to a racialization of uh, the labor force uh, and. Uh, created a sort of feedback loop of the reasons why poor white people were poor was because not all black people were poorer than they were. Uh, and that was, it was an easy thing to sell to a very, very desperate community um, who were hurting. Uh, and that is a, a playbook that is being repeated and repeated and repeated that, you know, the, Historically, what I'm talking about is the 1830s and 1840s. Uh, happens again uh, post-Civil War in the US in the 1870s and 1880s when you have the Great Migration uh, North uh, and the, the urbanization and um, uh, increase in, in black urban communities uh, happens again during the Great Depression, the 1830s. That's a global thing um, where you have, again, a massive in, in, uh, urbanization in the Western world, um, and a, a point to uh, people, communities of African descent and minority communities as well, as the reasons why this is occurring. And then uh, 1970s, uh, same thing happens, 1980s, same thing happens. Uh, and now I think we're seeing it again. Um, it, it rears its head every generation or so uh, when, when there, there's a need to remind communities of, you know, lie to communities as to why they're poor. And, and now it's manifesting itself in, uh, in gentrification, right? So these once poor neighborhoods, 
uh, now they're they're becoming like I, I live in Vancouver, and there's this place called uh, East Vancouver, mm-hmm. and it's predominantly it's it's always been working class, but now it's like you know it's it's like a million dollars to buy an apartment down there, and it's like what it, it seems that this castigation is artificially managed like it's not a re- it's not a real uh you know it's it, it's not really in nature it's it's maintained yeah i have a, a couple of colleagues who i always debate this with and they always tell me you know there's no dr evil behind the curtain managing all of this and you know it's not a, a single individual but it no it's been proved if you look at the manipulation of economic systems and the manipulation of communities that it's not actually that hard to maintain you know organized chaos in in that way uh, and and i think you're right gentrification is is a huge part of this um the the poor areas and you know my 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 most visceral experience is london um Southwest London, traditionally, when I, you know, even in my lifetime, has moved from being uh, a predominantly working class uh, and predominantly black area. Um, when I was about ten years old, some artists started moving in because they liked the ambiance and they liked the graffiti, and then some more artists started moving in, and all of a sudden, those bedrock communities are being priced out of their own markets. And where are they going? They're going to the suburbs, where it's in London, it's a little cheaper to live further out of town. Those areas are predominantly poor white. And now these poor white people are faced with black people who have inner city paychecks are now being pushed out further. And they are pointing to these communities of African descent who are moving further and further out into these poorer, poorer areas. And they are saying that it is their fault. Rather than seeing the, the what is in fact happening, you have middle class and upper middle class property developers coming in and artificially driving up the market price of the more central area. That's what's happening in London, and I'm sure that you could put a map on what's happening. Similar things happening in New York and in LA and in Vancouver, and um, you know even in smaller cities. I live in Columbia, South Carolina, right now, and that's similar things are happening there. It's not that hard to see that um, you know it only takes a few people to direct their investments in order to have a massive, you know, it's like it's the, the butterfly effect almost, a massive economic um, Im- impact, and that leads to a massive geographic impact, which then leads to a, a massive racial impact. It, you know, it's, it's a pretty easy line to draw. That is a really good point that you make. I mean, I don't think it's one, I don't believe in lizard people or anything crazy no, like that, no, of course it's obviously. Not that, but but what I, what I do think is that, yeah, in, in order for politicians, I mean, there's so many intersections throughout history and society and all these things, right? And which makes it difficult because every single intersection has has the right to what they believe in, right? It, it, everybody has a right to life, has mm-hmm. a right to exist, as long as it, 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 it results in coexistence, of course, and not the removal of another party. But the problem is, is in these intersections, it can kind of, this is what I see, is that it puts us into different camps. And when we're in different camps, our power is divided in, in, in what it is that we want. And that's, you know, a coexistence, a peaceful coexistence. And I think that 
again, I, I don't want to put a smoking gun in anybody's hands, but it does make it easier to sort of manage nations and states and governments and things like that. If it's not, if it's you versus different groups versus you, the politician versus everybody, right? Yeah, you cut out for a second there. Do you, do you mind just repeating that last thing you said? Yeah, I was just saying that it's easier to manage something if it's if it's you versus a bunch of separate groups than it's you versus one collective. Yeah, and they, again, that, that, that's not something new. It, it, no. the the language we use is potentially is is certainly different, and the the makeup of those groups is is obviously different. But that you know, slavery was a tool of control and oppression as much as it was an economic, um, you know, a very powerful economic uh, force. Um, the notion of the empire uh, was a, a way of managing um, managing populations. Um, you know, mercantilism was both an economic system but also a social system of control. If you extract all the resources and, and wealth from one area, it's very unlikely that that area is going to be able to challenge you down the road. That, you know, it's called mercantilism in the early modern world. It was called, you know, economics. Uh, and, you know, and American imperialism today is doing similar things um, discursively, you know, and they don't need to roll in with tank divisions to be able to control somebody else's life. Uh, and and that's that's happening there, and it's it's you know it's happening the other side as well. You know what are, what are, what are Russians doing in in Crimea? That exact same thing. What are, what are the Chinese doing in the Yugos? The exact same thing. I'm not an expert in any of that, but it's it mirrors quite closely what I am an expert in, which is you know when when communities buck against those methods of control and and how the controllers respond and um, overcome these these challenges to their authority, which is usually, as, as we discussed with, with anti-slavery and abolition, it's usually incorporating and diluting that message uh, in order to take away the power, take away its power. Right. And, and it seems that uh, an incredibly vicious tool, but racism it, it seems that racism is, is again, it's almost like something that's a, a product of something else. Like, is are, are human beings innately prejudiced or is that idea put into them? Well, I don't know. That's, you know, that, that, there is no, I don't know about the innateness of it. Um, and, but I would say I would take it to a communal level, a, the level of the, a society or a state, and I would say no, that there, that is not innate uh, on that level. Um, my favorite example, when we, we talked earlier, we, I mentioned it, uh, is uh, Shakespeare's Othello. Um, the 1600s, 1500s, 1600s, you can have a black hero. Uh, that would have been while not maybe expected, certainly accepted uh, by uh, the audience of the Globe or, you know, Stratford, or, you know, wherever, wherever's playing Othello, uh, it would have been, and it was, received well, and it was loved as a play. 200 years later, that doesn't, that's not possible. 
there, there's no black hero in Victorian literature. They are the heel, uh, they're the villain, uh, they're the incompetent sidekick at best. Uh, and that reflects an evolution in the place of race in English, British society. Uh, and, and a lot of that has to do with, as we, we started by discussing, the Haitian Revolution uh, and the increase in the perception of Africans as savage. Uh, and it has a lot to do with the end of slavery uh, and the dictation of where people of African descent fit in society because they are no longer slaves, uh, enslaved. They, they now have to be placed on, on the ladder and of course they are placed at the bottom of that ladder. And, and that's something that, that demonstrates that there is, there is no innate prejudice uh, necessarily. And yes, individuals were prejudiced, and um, it's, I'm not by no means suggesting that in Shakespearean England it was in any way comfortable to be of African descent. But it was, in terms of the African's place in society, it was very, very different. Uh, and there was, there was no large-scale white supremacy, uh, to, to use that, that phrase, uh, in the way that there was come Victorian Britain, uh, or, um, you know, and antebellum or even postbellum United States, uh, they would have experienced a similar thing. There was no, no chance for someone who was not white to be, uh, a, a heroic figure in, in society. Uh, there was the, you know, the othering, the, the presumed savagery, obviously you have, Native American populations as much as uh, formerly enslaved population that fit into that. Um, but by that point, you have a, a, a society conditioned to to see other and see uh, whiteness as superior. Which, which, which brings which me brings to our next interesting point that, that we talked yeah. about, and that's the role of the historian. Mm -hmm. So because we talked about like the you know hypotheticals, and that's not the role of a real I try to avoid the word like real historian but the purpose of a historian I, I, I love what you said I mean I don't want to take away your answer from you so what is the purpose no. of the historian so I think you know the the misconception is that it, it's about finding out things that happened in the past uh, and that is what what I do it is what we do but it's it's a means to the end because Every, we have to be conscious of filtering it through, firstly, our personal experience, but also the world around us now. Yeah. You know, I study enslaved rebellion because of, you know, my personal experience, my um, my mother's teachings and my, my growing up in, in Brixton in London. But also, um, I wouldn't be writing what I'm writing had, you know, the, the racial strife of the present day not been at the front and center of both my mind, but also a lot of other people. Uh, and I would have led to, it would have led to very different conclusions about the things that I did discover about the past, because that interpretation is, is absolutely vital. And it, it, what it's what separates, you know, the working historian from the person just reading about what happened. Uh, and, and I think it's an important skill. And I think it's, it's certainly something that society needs. I mean, obviously, I would say that. But but I think the ability to comprehend the the history of current events by knowing more about the past is a very good way of addressing and perhaps reconciling what is going on now. 
It's not to say that, you know, that the, the old cliche is those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it. And I, and I don't think that that's true, um, not only because no one's ever tried that, but also because it it's not like history has the answers. It, because as you said, it's not hypothetical. I don't think about what would happen had, you know, had Toussaint Louverture not been quite so tactically astute, what would have happened in Haiti? Like, that's, it doesn't, it's not important. That's not what happened. happened. Yeah. It's yeah. not what happened, so it, it doesn't matter. Um, but I think that looking at the way that the voices of black people, in even in moments of revolution, when they were desperate for independence and end of slavery, were silenced, the fact that they were silenced has in part led to our present situation where we have societies who are communally and, I mean, in, in, for a lot of people individually, but certainly communally incapable of listening to people of African descent. And I think that, that that's not a new problem. And I think the fact that it's not a new problem should inform our response to it. I mean, once you start to sort of read about this stuff, you start to see it more. I, I, I liken it constantly to the matrix. <clears throat> this idea of, you know, once you've seen it, you can't really unsee it. And even in the news, this idea of, it's almost like um, they paint it to be that all black people will vote Republican or all black people will vote Democratic. And it's like, that doesn't really like you're you're putting everybody into a single category when you when you speak like that, mm -hmm. and I just think that, like you say, one of the ways to reconcile the past is to to teach it. And one thing that I've noticed in my my own life now, I used to be a teacher, is that we oftentimes don't uh, teach what we're uncomfortable, what we don't know. So we have to come from a place of being able to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but a place of humility, like this is what happened. I don't know a lot about this, but let's figure it out, right? And I think that that can be empowering for students, because when I was a when I was a teacher, it was like, or excuse me, when I was a student, it was like the teacher knew everything, mm -hmm. and it was like to ask a question. It, it didn't really create a conversation. And I right. think that when you come from a place of like, I want to know as well, that that can be empowering. It can mm -hmm. be enriching. And, and I think that that can sort of, like you say, reconcile because I, I, another thing is that what, what I think might be problematic is that if, if I say, okay, so Haitian history, uh, I, I'm going to, you know, I, I'm going to need a person of color to, in order to teach this. And I think that that can kind of, again, take away from it. It's like, it should be, it should be me as well who's able to have this conversation in a way that, you know, I, I like I say, I don't know, but at least I'm showing that and that that's okay for kids, for yeah. all people. So I think, yeah, I think this is, that's a, it's a huge debate in the historical reader who is qualified to do what history. And right. it's, as you say, it, it would be absurd for only Haitians to, to only consider Haitians to be qualified to do Haitian history, only consider, you know, Brits to do British history. It, it, you know, firstly, what does it mean to be British? I'm I'm British and my mother was so like, you know, you go back 50 years and neither parent was in Britain 
and I'm studying things that were 200 plus years ago, am I qualified? Well, obviously I think I am, and uh, I mean, I am qualified. Uh, but, you know, there are people that might suggest, no, you're not, you, you, you haven't lived that sufficiently mm -hmm. to be able to say that. But I do think, and I think you're, what you said about comfort is really important. You know, you, you can't do it, you can't teach something you're not comfortable teaching. You can't research something you're not comfortable researching. Um, and you have to be very honest with yourself about whether you are or aren't. Um, there are, you know, smaller topics that I have shied away from, um, you know, in my research because I'm not comfortable doing it. Not, not like, not emotionally, but I, you know, I, I try to avoid certain source bases because I'm not quite as comfortable interpreting them. Uh, as I believe I have colleagues who are. Uh, and so I, I tend to, you know, share my thoughts with them and, and let them uh, do the heavy lifting on that. Uh, I focus more on um, qualitative stuff, and, and but I know some, there are some phenomenal historians that do really wonderful things with, you know, data and, and statistics. I'm just not comfortable doing it, so I don't do it, and I'm not comfortable teaching it, so I don't teach it. But I'm comfortable, and I'm, I'm, I'm safe in the knowledge that there are people that are comfortable doing both of those things and therefore do it. Um, but I, I also know people who are not quite as honest with themselves about it and try and bite off more that they can chew. And, and, and that leads to bad teaching, bad research and, and miserable students who, who have a, a very, you know, a very disappointing outlook on what history does and what it can do. And, and I, so I agree. I think that the, the comfort level that the, the scholar has with the material is very, very important. Uh, and it's something that I, frankly, it, is a new, it's a new debate in the, in the profession. Um, it, it's something that, you know, until recently, historians were taught to, to, to as much as possible remove themselves from the narrative. Um, not, not that I'm saying that you can only study what you have experienced, um, but remove your personal views and, I, and approaches to things. And I think that that's actually really important and, 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 and writers and, and teachers and, you know, not, not just academics, but anyone that engages with information in any way should really celebrate the fact that they are putting their own spin on whatever they're reading and, and producing. We all have bias. Yeah, celebrate that. Yeah. Let, like, let's engage with the fact that that's a thing. It, it's not a bad thing. Don't uh, we say that like yesterday the, the state of Florida just passed a law that made it illegal for uh, teachers to teach anything in a biased way, whatever whatever that means. I don't know what that. But that's means. impossible because well, you're taking yeah. away the 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 emotion from it, right? I mean, yes. I, I this is what I think. I think you need to identify your bias, right? We well, you need is, to be aware of what it is. Absolutely, a hundred percent. Like, but like you need uh, to use it too. You could. That's it's, it's a weapon in your toolbox that you can use to your advantage to both be a better scholar and a better teacher, but engage students in a way that ordinarily it would they wouldn't be engaged with. But you know, everyone is aware of it if they just think for a second why they think the way that they think. It, it's not a hard thing to access, and it's not a hard thing to celebrate. If you if you didn't have bias, I mean, I I, I always like like you know we talk about the past and, and the future. I I think I sometimes think of Star Trek as you know this this distant future where we can all just get along, right? Right. Uh, or or that's that's the hope. But 
if you didn't have bias, you would be like a Vulcan or something. You know what I mean? Like you, you wouldn't have attachment to what it is that you're studying. And part about life is that you do have some, some skin in the game, right? Which we've spoken about. I mean, that's what makes for, uh, I think a a riveting and and a rich historical telling. Yeah, no, I I completely agree, but I think it it goes bigger than that too, Mm -hmm. because I think that people, you know, going back to, you know, putting this in the present day, but also historically, um, people need to recognize what their positions, how their place in life affects their positions on things. Uh, And I think that that's something that has been sorely lacking. And it's this, for too long, people have been told that bias is, is inherently negative and that you should approach things as evenly as you can, rather than recognize and then celebrate your take on things that have happened. Um, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, to take kneeling, uh, kneeling in football games is a good example of this. People are out. I'm not convinced that people are outraged because they are genuinely outraged. I think that they're outraged because they think that they should be outraged. And that's a very different thing. It, it's no less real. I'm not suggesting that that outrage is not genuine, but it's not the same. As, as, as personal offense to an act. And that it, recognizing that would change the discourse. I'm not sure how, but it would, right? I, I, I think too that with people who are upset about kneeling, it's, to me, discomfort speaks to us. If, so, if I'm, if I'm, you know, if, why am I why am I being uncomfortable right now? I, mm-hmm. I think that that's a good is it because I'm unprepared or is it because this clashes with something that I believe? And if right. so, why do I believe that right? So I think that the best thing to do here's here's what I think is kind of you know I'm going to tell you what I think is lacking in society as if I know, but it's our inability to have conversations between people of different opinions. Right. It's this idea that somebody has to walk away being right. And the other person has to walk away being wrong. Yeah, I would take that a step further back, though. I I, I I was going to say, I think we need to be able to understand each other. But please do take that a step further. I I, I think that the I I agree that that is, you know, that's a a cancer on society that that is running rampant. But I think the reason why is because I'm not I'm not sure we ever knew how to interrogate why we think what we think. So it's impossible to work out how to reconcile your views with another person's if you don't even know why you are holding the views that you hold. And you, you, you know, people, people need to interrogate that further in order to, to engage and, you know, to bring it back historically onto firmer ground. For me, the, imperial officials looking at enslaved rebellions were incapable of seeing other than a repeat of Haiti and working to stop that. The people who were rebelling wanted independence and an end to slavery and were willing to go to any means necessary to get that. That is a discourse that 
was completely incompatible. And I think similar things are occurring now, but it, rather than because of there being a genuine, you know, an economic subjugation to engage with, that's a, that's a really short-term and really quick way. Re, it's a really short-term and really quick impossible reconciliation between an enslaved person and an imperial, uh, enslaved people and imperial officials. Right now, it's a lot more nebulous, but you still have that Im impossible reconciliation. But I don't think we know why that is right now. And I think people must, communities need to look much more internally as to why that is in order to engage with the other side. I, I, I mean, there's so many different perspectives of looking through history. And one, one of my favorites is, is the Marxist-Leninist approach. I mean, and if you look to, again, what was the problem here is that the people who held the power, they were afraid that they were going to lose it, that their colonies, it would turn into another Haiti. God forbid that there's a black republic that they have to do uh, equitable trades with, you know, so that they don't just get the mass production. I mean, the, if, if, uh, yeah, you, sorry, I was going to go on a hypothetical there for a sec, but I no, stopped. <laughs> Anyways, but, but what I, the, the point is, is that even today, the real fear like diversity and equality and inclusion, it's it's smoke and mirrors. You know what I mean? It's not real equity. Like in terms of corporations and you know, dare I say, education, even entertainment. Mm -hmm. it, who really still holds all the power? And that's what we need to look at, right? And, and I yeah. think that. Well, I mean, it's 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 an issue of scale, right? I. It's quite easy for me to engage with, you know, diversity and inclusion in, in my personal life. Obviously, I'm not white and I teach histories of race and slavery, and that's quite a self-selecting group of students. Um, University-wide, it's a little bit more difficult, but it, it, it is, it's working on, on university campuses. They're, they, are, they have a long way to go, but they're more diverse than they were 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. And the corporate level, it's things are significantly better than they were in the past, right? But you're right. There, the notion that you can fix, you know, you fix businesses and, and institutions, and then society will somehow follow. I I agree with you. I think I'm a little suspicious that that's going to happen because I think people will. It'll end up being nine to five equality, which is not enough. And, and that is the, I mean, that's fertile ground for uh, historical revolutions. I mean, there's this idea of, th there's a theory that um, rising expectations, but then suddenly it stops. People mm -hmm. are like, hey, you know, there's, there's more here. I think that that's kind of what happened with like the Russian revolution. Again, I, I'm not an expert. And I, I, I understand that's not exactly your field, but no, it's this, but... this that we're still not there, right? There's still inequities. Yeah, it's they, like yeah. how how do we navigate that in the 21st century? And and even just think, I mean, with the with the printing press, the way that 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 people were able to mobilize themselves 
now with the internet, I mean, you know, who knows what the next 20 years have in store for us? Yeah, and I think that that's, I think you, you sort of hit the nail on the head there that, that the problems are still not fixed. These are, none of these are new problems. They are manifesting themselves differently because, you know, the, the internet is different to the printing press, but the, the disruptions it is causing are, are about the same. Um, the slavery and the chattel, industrial slavery does not exist anymore, but the reasons why it occurred and the reasons, you know, mass exploitation for maximum economic gain are the same reasons as you have drastic inequalities going on in present day society. And I think that people need to stop trying to, you know, people are pulling the weeds up, but the roots are definitely yes, yes. still in the ground. And as a, as a society, we need to stop being so shocked when the roots, uh, when the, the weeds come out of the ground every once in a while, because the, we've not actually done anything about them. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, the uh, historians can highlight this and that's what we do. Uh, we keep highlighting the fact that the roots are still there. Um, but, you know, we are, we are not tethered by the um, practicalities of actually having to do anything about it. You know, we're not, we're not the politicians, we're not the business owners, we're not the the leaders uh, uh, in society. We are the observers of society. And that can be very frustrating, but it's also, we have that freedom. And we're, so we are able to, to see those things in a way that people with responsibilities to do anything about it maybe can't. Right. That's why That's I studied why I history uh, in university. <laughs> yes, because uh, it's true that we do need to question our perspectives. And I think that history does that when it's not imperial mm -hmm. history, you know, or, or imperial empiricism. I forget. Um, Edward, Gitt, he was the guy who wrote the, you know, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. But it was very yeah. one-sided. And I'll never forget yeah. that uh, uh, I, I was in an indigenous uh, histories course. And this one lady said, why are we studying this? They were defeated. Yeah, right. And it's like, well, like that encapsulates so many problems right there in that statement. Like, well, they were defeated. Why are we learning about them? Right. Yeah. And, and, I mean, and that is, that's what we, you know, like as a society, we need to ask ourselves, is that what we're saying is because this isn't relevant anymore. That's why we're not learning about or, or excuse me, yeah. because this isn't, happening right now this is why are we learning about this when really yeah, it, I, it's echoes it, it yeah it's echoes that why are we learning about it why aren't we learning from it is i think those are the two those are the two sort of rhetorical gripes that i have you know the frustrations mm -hmm. um it it should it, it's obvious to me but then i've been training for this for you know a very very long time so of course it's obvious to me um that you know I, I i study a rebellion in modern day british guyana and i see parallels with what is going on in london in 2020 well yeah of course i would wouldn't i because i'm from london and i'm i'm an expert studying this sort of thing so you know the 
patience is obviously important with this, but at, at the same time, whoever this person was is is obviously wrong. Oh, <laughs> being defeated is is not a precursor to forgetting and. You know, living in the United States South, sometimes I wish that were the case. But for the the vast majority of the time, it, it it's the, the why were they defeated? Is would be my next question, and then the one after that. But how does that manifest today? Were, were they really defeated? Are they all gone? Or uh, you know, uh, is Canada wrestling with its relationship with First Nations to this day? And looking at the news right now, um, they very, very, very much are. So I think it's very important to to look at the origins of that. Not not to suggest it would ever happen again. I think that it wouldn't. But I think it understanding its roots would be very beneficial to modern day relationships. In, and I think that, that that would be repeated in the United States. It would be repeated in Britain. And in Britain, last couple of months ago, commissioned this a report on on racial equality in Britain. And it concluded that there was no systemic racism in the UK, which is utter nonsense. And I denounced it, and my colleagues denounced it, and the United Nations denounced it. Um, and you, all you need to do is, you know, read my work and read other people's works. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm by no means the authority on this, but even me, lowly me, would be able to tell you the reasons why it was nonsense. Uh, and it wouldn't have taken very long to read my catalogue, and there were people far smarter than me who would take a lot longer but you'd all reach the same conclusion uh, that there are very re very real historical reasons why systemic racism does exist in the UK and this report willfully ignored those to come to its conclusion. There's an episode that uh, I'll have to share with you but it's with this guy who he was like oh you talk about Jamaica and I was like well but you have to understand the history of of how any we have to understand like we don't just appear somewhere we get right. there everybody gets to where they're going and that's why history is important is we can understand where we're coming from and ultimately where we're going where we're headed and and like you've said i mean that that echoes until today so um for yourself what's what's next ahead i mean you said that you're moving to the university of oklahoma Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So I'm starting there in the fall. Um, hopefully, uh, publishing my book. Uh, it's still in pieces, um, but it's it's a book about uh, enslaved rebellions. Um, looking at you know not looking at Haiti, but looking at those that came after Haiti, uh, and the ways that the Haitian Revolution was repeated in them, and then how. The British Empire responded to them, uh, and my, I argue that they, they crafted a new form of racism uh, without slavery by co-opting the, the messages of enslaved people uh, and distorting them after the fact. Uh, and I project that forward um, to to the uh, the two twenty twenty to the 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 marches, the George Floyd protests that happened in London, to point out that um, people of African descent have a community outside the modern nation, uh, and that's, you know, the, 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 the tragedy of, of people of African descent anywhere affects people of African descent everywhere, and how 
modern states because of their inherent racism are, are, are not able to comprehend that or address it. In your studies, which by the way, you have to send me a copy of this book when it's done and I'll, I'll have you back probably, But yeah, I certainly will. <laughs> um, but in your studies, what was the bit, like, did you have an aha moment, like your biggest takeaway from everything that you've learned in the, in the course of, I, I forget how many years was it? Is it 15 years that you've been, been studying this? Yeah. Um, this project I've been doing for seven, um, but I've been, you know, since I started my formal studies, it's been 13. Yeah. So it's been a while. Um, I think it, I was very reluctant to insert my personal narrative into the process. Um, and, you know, I, I don't write about my mother and I don't write about my upbringing, but I was very, I was very reluctant to allow that to seep into my analysis and, and seep into my writing. Uh, and it was a, it was a, it was about, yeah, probably four years ago when when I I just I finally just let that start happening. Uh, I, you know, I, I re re relented to myself uh, and and just accepted that it was actually it was inevitable, uh, and it quickly became absolutely vital. Uh, and it allowed me it, it opened so many analytical doors for me, uh, being able to you know look, use that lens, the lens of my own understanding of race. Uh, and the place of being non-white in, in British society suddenly allowed me to read into the documents that I was looking at, um, you know, the court records and private letters and testimonies and, and diaries uh, from enslaved people and people who were around enslaved people suddenly just took on a whole new meaning um, by being able to filter it through the present state of race relations in Britain, which was how I used my, my personal upbringing. And, and, and you know, as I said, the role of the historian is to, to understand it through the present. There's no way I could have understood what I was looking at to the degree that I do without doing that. So you were so, place yourself in history. I, I was able to place people like me in the history. Um, you know, I, I wasn't there and I didn't experience it as an individual, but I have family members who experienced it and, and ancestors who experienced it. You know, my, my mother's my mother's ancestry is enslaved uh, people in, in South Africa. Uh, and so I I could tap into you know an actually quite visceral um, communal memory in order to understand things going on in the in the Caribbean. Is is your mother still with us? No, she passed a, a few years ago. Um, but she told me well. And and she knew that you were, you know, taking on this undertaking and Oh yeah, yeah. No, she she definitely encouraged me. She was a she was a teacher herself. She taught art and art history um at the at high school level. Uh, and so was was obviously quite quite biased, but celebrated that bias by encouraging me to to go into similar into a similar field. Um and she was she was adamant that we, me, and my my brother and sister, um, learned our past and learned to understand our present through that past. And I just I'm putting it on a a bigger scale 
Um, but it worked. But as I said, I was reluctant to do that. I, it felt mm -hmm. exploitative uh, for a very long time. I wanted to be a, a little further back and a, away from it. And realizing that that was both impossible and counterproductive was the only way that I, I was able to do that. Awesome. Well, Dr. Lewis Elliott, thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. This was this was awesome. This was well, great I, I'm going to have to have you back on and uh, just do it. Sure. Hopefully before that book comes out, because if it's coming out 2025, I mean, I don't know if I can yeah. wait that long. Well, I'll, 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 I'll rush if I can, but, you know, <laughs> the, the editing process is slow, both on my end and, and the presses. So, um, is it, Now, are, is this is this going to be like a popular history book, like a like almost like a now Ferguson kind of <laughs> level or? No, uh, I, I so I, I like to think that I write excessively. I mean, you can you can be you can agree or disagree with that. Um, but you know there, there is a professional requirement to own your chops and and that means university press first the next book maybe will be if, if i if I, look if i have Niall ferguson's career I'll, I'll be very very happy <laughs> with myself well thank you so much and um really thank you for uh, for your time and your insight no thanks for having me um and uh, yeah for sure again again if you want me I'll be with those great. I do. There's your answer. So thank you. Awesome. All right. Good to see you again. Again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.